Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody. Hope everybody is staying safe. I could not be more excited for our guests today. They are the co-directors of the documentary Crip Camp, which I am calling out as the best film of 2020 so far. You can take that to the bank, and you can watch the film right now on Netflix. I'm very happy to introduce Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan. My friends, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a real honor. Before we get started, talking about the film. How are both of you doing with the new normal, I guess we'll call it for now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think that we're, I'm certainly adjusted pretty well. And I think we both have, certainly it's a bit of a difference of how uh, I think either one of us thought that we'd be involved with a film, but you know, I feel really grateful. I've got a roof over my head mm-hmm. and food on the table. So you can ask for much more than that. Exactly. Nicole, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I, I think as you know, as Jim said, where it's been a, um, it's not the film release that we imagined, but we, I think, both feel so grateful that Crip Camp contains a story and themes that are really relevant to people in this time. It seems as though the message of kind of community coming together, taking care of one another, you know, and creating a better world is is one that people really are wanting to engage with in this moment as we kind of think about how do we reinvent the world for ourselves post-pandemic. And that's been gratifying. Absolutely. For those who aren't aware of it or who haven't seen it yet, can you guys give us a brief description of the film? Well, Crip Camp is a story that starts out at a summer camp for disabled teens and young adults that I went to at the age of 15 back in the early 1970s in the Catskill Mountains of New York. And imagine a summer camp for people with disabilities run by hippies. I mean, what could go wrong, you know? (laughs) And in reality, a lot of things really went right. But out of that camp, because of the way that we were treated as campers, a, a number of us got involved with politically in disabled civil rights. And it was the environment of that camp where we weren't infantilized, where we were just, the mission was to give us a great summer. And also kind of a product of the times of the early 70s, where there were, uh, uh, the women's movement was going on, a lot of other liberation movements were happening, that we started looking around and saying, you know, why can't we get on buses? Why can't we, you know, take uh, the train. And, you know, we need our own civil rights movement. So the film itself starts off at camp. It follows a number of people who um, in their lives got involved with that movement, the least of which was Judy Human, who is really probably one of the greatest leaders in the disabled civil rights movement. So, and it kind of traces some unknown history of the disabled and our fight for civil rights. You know, obviously you were there, you've carried this story with you and these amazing experiences with you for nearly 50 years. At what point did you say to yourself, hey, let's make a film about this amazing story? Was it something that you had wanted to do for years and years and it just didn't come through? Or was there a moment that it was like, oh, now's the time? 
I've been working in documentary films as a mixer for decades, a couple of decades. And as I've really noticed the power of documentary film, I just felt like there wasn't a documentary out there that really showed disability in a light that I understood. And it wasn't all about overcoming tragedy or, you know, some super hero in a wheelchair or something, but that's really looking at our lives. And I've known Nicole for well over 15 years. She's a wonderful filmmaker, 25 years worth of experience. And I'd had the pleasure of mixing three of her films. And um, about five years ago, she and I went out to lunch, kind of checking in with each other. And, you know, kind of long story short, I was pitching her a bunch of ideas around disability for her to direct and maybe I'd produce. And almost offhandedly, I said, uh, you know, but what I really wanted to see was a documentary about my summer camp. And Nicole, you you had a good response to that, thank God. Yeah, well, I mean, I love working with Jim. And Jim's perspective as a person working in our industry with a disability had become increasingly fascinating to me because as time went by, Jim was becoming kind of like a a more and more powerful advocate for representation of people with disabilities and for access for filmmakers with disabilities. And so I was really interested in trying to work on a project with Jim. But when he first said, you know, I really want to see a film about my summer camp, I think I might have rolled my eyes a little bit inwardly because people are always (laughs) telling you their summer camp stories, you know, right? like I went to a really special summer camp and you're like, yeah, it was special to you, you know, but does the whole world need to know about it? But then as Jim started talking about it, I was like, oh, my God, I think the whole world, you know, might need to know about this. If this was this, you know, radical, liberating experience that was a springboard for one of the great civil rights stories of our time that nobody knows about, you know, and then I saw these photographs that people had been collating on Facebook over the years, you know, campers and counselors were sending in pictures. And there was one counselor who had taken hundreds of beautiful black and white pictures, many of which are in the documentary. And that was just like mind blowing to me because I realized I had never seen any images in the media or in my own life of a community of people with disabilities, just like having like kind of a wild partying culture, just like filled with joy, you know, playing tricks on each other, laughing, like all the things that you see in the film, but that I think most of us really don't have a kind of mental model for uh, those of us who are, you know, not part of the disability community. The sense of humor was amazing. And that kind of like feeling that there was this story that kind of was alongside a lot of the stories that we know about Woodstock or Vietnam War protesting and all of this that changed all of our lives, but we weren't aware of it. it was like, it was very exciting to me as a filmmaker. And it also, I had just finished a couple projects that were very serious. And I knew this was going to be a ton of fun. You know, I just knew it was going to be um, fun to work with Jim and fun to get to know all the people in the film. And, you know, we we set out to make a, a film that would feel, even though it deals with a lot of really serious topics, like a party that people would want to get invited to, you know, <laughs> but I feel like we, we did that. Absolutely. There's a lot of laughs in the film. A lot of the people that you interviewed are really hilarious. Talk to us about once you guys decided to dive into this film, what was it like, the acquisition of this footage? And Jim, what was it like for you, you know, when once you two acquired the footage to look back at Camp Jeanette all those years later? It must have been a bit of a trip. Yeah, I, I will say that it's a rare experience that you can all of a sudden go back almost 50 years 
and see yourself uh, on video. And it really opened up a lot of memories for me that were quite remarkable. And just opening up a hard drive that we received with these videos and it was just like looking through this telescope back in time. Well, you had, you can imagine it was really moving. Yeah. Just to see friends of mine that were no longer alive and seeing these interactions that I had never seen before. And the acquisition of the footage, was it pretty easy to get? Did you guys just reach out to the people who had filmed it initially? <laughs> no, it was quite a saga. It was quite a saga. So, I mean, basically the footage existed because this radical hippie video coalition called the People's Video Theater, which was doing really extraordinary work with some of the very early portable video equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do these things they called pop-up video theaters where they would go into a community like say Greenwich Village and they would interview people about like, what do you think about the Vietnam War or something like that or about feminism? And then they would show the footage that they had filmed of those folks back to them on a video monitor, which was you know, a brand new that that was even possible. And so many people had never seen themselves on quote unquote television before, you know, and the theory was that that was empowering for communities. And so they had this equipment and they, they stopped at this gas station in the Catskills and they saw a van of, you know, disabled campers from Camp Jeanette and their counselors. And there was that kind of like, Hey, what are you doing? You know, with that video equipment? Well, Hey, who are you? And eventually they said, the campers and counselors said, why don't you come over tomorrow to our camp? We're going to have a Camp Olympics and you could film it. So when they got there, the camp was shut down. They couldn't get in through the gate. And eventually, you know, they just sat down to wait, which I love because I feel like in the 70s, people would do that. You know, they'd be like, <laughs> right. Well, for an hour and see what happens. You know? And they acid while they were waiting. And, and they were like basically tripping when the gates opened and the Camp Jeanette folks said, come on in. And when they walked in, there was no Camp Olympics because the camp was in the middle of this whole quarantine because of this small crabs epidemic that had broken out because of a couple of amorous counselors. And these guys just turned on their cameras and started filming and stayed for days and, and captured all this footage. But what Jim remembered of that that was that somebody had visited the camp and given him a camera and strapped the porta pack onto the back of his chair and had him film a tour of the camp. And that eventually a little documentary about the crabs epidemic had showed up on Manhattan cable television. <laughs> and so we, we he, and also Jim remembered that people was in the title of the group. So we just did a ton of online sleuthing over months. And eventually we found out that it was the people's video theater because we found a little ad in the back of an old magazine that, you know, for the crabs tape. And we've tracked down a couple of the surviving members of the people's video theater who were living just a few miles from us. Well, one of them was like living in San Francisco and we were working in Berkeley. And not only that had all the footage and not only that was like midway through the process of digitizing it. And so it was to be seen for the very first time, you know, after 50 years. And, and it was very like emotional for all of us to think of, you know, Jim starting to, you know, make that film basically 50 years ago and then picking it up all these years later. That is crazy. How serendipitous that, that A, they lived so close to you and B, they were in the process of digitizing it. Like that is, that had to be a sign, right? (laughs) Yep. It was meant to be. I really love just the, the structure of the film, you know, as you were talking about, both, both of you were talking about starting off, you know, with these teenagers being told all their lives, you know, no, or you can't, or, you know, you can, but, but then seeing how Camp Jeanette told you guys, you know, you are, and then seeing the positive impact that 
it had not only on their individual lives, but, you know, the positive impact it had on the country because of, you know, how much, you know, you guys, so many of you guys got involved in the civil rights movement. Was the structure, when you guys decided to do the documentary, was the structure kind of always there and obvious or was it kind of revealing itself to you as you guys started working on it? I would say it revealed itself to us, even though what we initially set out to investigate was the link between the experience of the camp and the and the movement that came later, mm-hmm. which was a theory that, that Jim had, that the two were connected. And it's not like that had really been written about or documented or, or anything. Although we did eventually find a couple of academics who were writing papers about the impact of camps like Jened in kind of the formation of the disability rights movement. Once we found the footage, you know, we we did feel like this experience of being able to kind of immerse people in the camp and then follow them out into the world to see what happened was, you know, really an extraordinary way to look at history because usually you don't have that ability. You know, we would sometimes talk about the film as being like a mashup of The Breakfast Club meets The Times of Harvey Milk. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> when we had to pitch it because you know, the Breakfast Club reference is just a, a way, a shorthand of saying, you know, we wanted people to actually connect with individual characters, get to know them, feel for them, and feel like they had spent a summer with those people, you know, so that when it came to the politics that the film focuses on later, you'd be seeing that history through through that particular very individual lens. And, you know, somebody at an early screening when we were trying to nail the structure said, oh, I felt like I didn't know, it, you know, how it was going to be to be with these people. And then pretty soon they became my homies. And then my homies were starting a revolution. And, and we thought, okay, <laughs> we're going to be able to make this work, you know, but it wasn't totally clear for a while. People were like, Oh, is this two films really, you know, like how are these two things connected? And and we had some brilliant editors who helped us create a language that kind of made it all make sense and feel like it flowed from one part to the other. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the dots are connected beautifully and it's just, it's a special watch. It is a special watch. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back more with Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht, the directors of Crip Camp, when we return on Film Forward. If you like the music in our show, all songs are performed by the band Dub 8. Check out their new EP, Ayudame, available on iTunes and Spotify. All right, welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are talking about the Audience Award winner at the Sundance Film Festival in 2020, Crip Camp. And we are joined by the co-directors, Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht. You know, I studied women's rights. I studied Chicano rights. I studied the civil rights movements. When I saw this film, I was really embarrassed that I did not know this story. But, you know, I talked to many other people who saw this film, some of whom were disabled as well, and they didn't know about this story. Why do you feel like this section of civil rights history has kind of taken a back seat? Because it doesn't really make sense to me. Probably doesn't make sense to you either, but I was wondering if you have any insight. I think that the importance of people knowing their history is you know, essential. And obviously, we've been teaching history for centuries and centuries. But when I think that when people think about the people with disabilities, they don't think about us as a community. They don't think about us as a culture. 
They don't think about us as a group of people that you would have any pride or brother or sisterhood with. Mm. And indeed for us, you know, and I certainly identify culturally as somebody with a disability. I gain so much by knowing about others that have come before me. I mean, imagine what it was like for me as a 15-year-old to meet Judy Human at Camp Jeanette. Yeah. And, you know, here was a quote-unquote, no pun intended, role model, being that she uses a wheelchair and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here was somebody that I met that fought to get her teaching position. She had gotten her license, and the Board of Education in New York said, no, you're a fire hazard. Forget it. And so for the first time in my life, I saw a dynamic person with a disability who fought back and showed me that that this unfair world that I was living in, it was possible maybe, just maybe, to make some positive changes. So I think that when we think of people with disabilities, we don't really think about them ever in a positive manner. And why would they have a history? Why would that be important? For the love of goodness, I hope Crip Camp really kind of shows that that has been some really backward and very oppressive attitude. Absolutely. There's one quote, I forget who said it. It was in the old Camp Jeanette footage. I think it was Steve Hoffman, where he said, if you're disabled and have a passive personality, you're screwed. And I thought, I was like, whoa, I mean, that's, it's, it was a really powerful statement, but he's absolutely right. And then, you know, you see the, you know, the tenacity and the grit of Judy Human, and it, it just all makes sense. You know, you have to fight for everything, not just your rights, but you have to fight for literal space. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you fight for your place at the table, mm-hmm. but first off, you got to get into the building to get to the table and make sure that the doorway is wide enough for you to go through if you want to carry just a simply wheelchair user focus for all of this. I mean, Steve was definitely one of the least passive people I've ever met in my life. (laughs) And, uh, you know, his daughter Emily told us that he would just zoom around town in his power chair without a seatbelt on, and that he probably had about five or six broken noses <laughs> in, his, in his lifetime. And he's right. But I, you know, I have to say that activism isn't something that we all have to be out on the streets to do. And there's incredible activism that it happens from people's homes and bedrooms. Right. So you can be tenacious and be not passive and not have to like go to the barricades. Yeah. It's great that you that you brought up that line from Steve Hoffman, because that was one thing that we really focused on as being kind of the gestalt of the film. We, we called it the spirit of Steve, that kind mm-hmm. of punk spirit of, you know, I don't care what you say or what you think. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it my way. And that's such a powerful political philosophy. And you actually do see it kind of, you know, change laws and change the world. And we knew that in order for this film to avoid a lot of the tropes with which people with disabilities are typically seen, you know, that kind of like inspiration porn thing or the, you know, tragedy of this and that, that the spirit of Steve was was the thing that we were going to kind of have to hold up. And we tried to make sure that almost every scene in the film, you know, had that kind of punk Steve spirit in it. It was kind of our North Star. That's a great North Star to follow. You know, as you guys were going into, you know, the post-camp part of the film, you know, when we're following Judy and, you know, the civil rights movement, can you talk about the acquisition or like the creating of the story in documentary form of that footage? Because a lot of that stuff was really fascinating as well. Well, you know, this goes back to 
one of your earlier questions about why do we think the history was ignored, Mm -hmm. you know, it was really ignored and it was, and that made it very hard to source this footage. There had been other films that had covered the 504 sit-in and um, the Capitol crawl and the ADA. And so there was a little bit of it that was available, but we wanted to try to tell the story in, in a manner that would feel, you know, like it had some continuity from the kind of immersive, kind of comprehensive uh, way that the People's Video Theater filmed at Camp Jeanette. And we wanted to, you know, feel like we were following the history through the eyes of our band of friends. And so the way to do that was to just like try to find every scrap of footage that had ever been taken of any of these protests and things like, you know, the Madison Avenue demonstration where Judy Human and um, a bunch of activists, you know, shut down the entire city with 50, you know, disabled people blocking Madison Avenue. When we started looking, there was like no imagery of that. We mm-hmm. couldn't find a single photograph. And then we, you know, as we raised money, we then had the capacity to pay the New York Times to go and look in their own archive and things like that. And then these things started to get sourced, but they were photographs that hadn't been cataloged yet, you know, so they they wow. weren't digitized. They hadn't been looked through. We had archives where there were tapes that had been given by some of these early disability organizations, you know, to universities. And we would go in and ask, and it would take a year and a half to be able to look at the footage by the time they actually got around to looking in the box, itemizing the thing and making it available for us to look at. So, I mean, I I talked to a a scholar that Judy Human connected me with in London um, who works on disability rights. And she said, you know, if you don't have a history, it's hard to have a future. Right. I felt always like there was something about bigotry and political oppression that has kept this story hidden for so long and something really kind of you know, powerful about reclaiming it in this way. I want to now kind of flash forward. You guys were, as you can attest to, being in the edit room and the black hole of compiling a documentary can be a little bit of a whirlwind. But can you, both of you, take us into the experience of screening at Sundance? What was it like seeing it on the big screen with a crowd? Many of the people who were in the documentary there with you guys, can you take us back there? Yeah, well, let me grab my tissues first. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. We had a wonderful gentleman, Michael Chow, who, when he first contacted us, said, I'd like to get all the kids out for the opening of Sundance. And it's like, well, that's incredible. That's amazing. Well, you know, we're all in our 60s now, you know. We're not, we're not kids anymore. <laughs> right. And so we were able to have so many people from the film there, plus a number of people like counselors and stuff from the camp that also came out. And first off, you know, the first time in front of a large audience, and you realize that the humor is starting to work, or it is working, that people are reacting, and it's quite the incredible rush. But when the credits started rolling, we all kind of went from where we were sitting and rolling on stage, and you could see in silhouette all these people entering the stage while the credits kind of rolled behind us. And the applause was just remarkable. And the credits are a good three minutes long, at least. And then when the lights came up, everybody was standing. That kept up for another good three minutes or so. Incredible. It was just like the seminal, it felt like the seminal moment of recognition for people with disabilities in an extraordinarily important venue when it comes to society and the arts. And then, you know, their question came up and uh, Nicole handed the microphone to Judy Human to answer this question. And again, there was a thunderous standing ovation. You know, I, I'm a sound designer and that was like one of the loudest things I ever heard in my life, <laughs> I swear. And uh, it was just beautiful. 
It really was great. And then, you know, the rest of the week was Judy human sent us a text at one point saying, I hope you're, I hope you're enjoying walking among the crowds of people whom you've awakened, (laughs) which was really like beautiful text to get. But um, it did feel like that. Like we were moving with the, you know, crowd of Janetians um, who had come with us, you know, through the streets of Park City and people were coming up and wanted to have selfies and wanted to engage in conversation. And, you know, our editor, went to get a sandwich at the deli and the woman saw the tag around his neck and said, Oh my God, did you work on Crip Camp? And he said, yes. And she burst into tears. <laughs> so we did have this, it was a beautiful like pre pandemic experience of getting to actually feel the emotional impact that the film was making both on the audience, but also like, you know, how it shifted the way that even the people in the film were kind of being interacted with, you know, right there and then. It was it was amazing. A friend of mine, David Radcliffe, who has CP, was at Sundance when this screened. And just hearing his review while he was there and when he came back, he was just, he was glowing and he was so proud. And he was, you know, he's a disability rights activist himself. And he, he really was just full of light after seeing that film. So you guys done good. We love He's he also worked as a writing consultant on our. Oh, really? Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, David's a a great, great guy. Truly. My next question, it doesn't really relate to your film, but it's more theoretical and maybe like, let's brainstorm this. How do we get Judy Human on American money? Because I think that's the next step. (laughs) (laughs) I think Ulysses says grant out Judy Human in. That's going to be my my mission. I'm with you. <laughs> you can see it in the film, right? Like few few individuals have been as directly responsible for quite so much social change. It's pretty, she's she's extraordinary and it's wonderful to feel like this film is playing any role in helping her to achieve the profile she has deserved for a long time. Absolutely. I can just I can just hear the rap song now. It's all about the Judies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it sells itself. That's a that's a platinum hit right there. You got it. Well, guys, you did an absolutely amazing job with this film. I'm so thankful to you guys for making it and for sharing uh, this story, and thankful for being on our podcast. You guys rock. <laughs> Crip Camp is available right now to stream on Netflix, and I implore you all to watch it. As soon as you're done listening to this podcast, you will not regret it. We're gonna take one more break, and when we come back. Jim and Nicole are going to help us out with our favorite segment. Give me three. What's up, everybody? Here's another edition of Cinephile News, news for all you cinephiles out there. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused cancellations and postponements across the film industry, including many of the biggest film festivals in the world. But... According to the governor of Italy's Veneto region, the 2020 Venice International Film Festival was scheduled to go ahead in September. However, the festival has not itself confirmed this statement. The new Christopher Nolan film Tenet is still scheduled to hit theaters on July 17th. Warner Brothers has held firm on their original release date. And an anonymous studio distribution president called Tenet the canary in the coal mine if it does go. The rest of the industry is kind of banking on its release. Disney has planned for Mulan to open the following weekend, and Warner Brothers has another hit scheduled for August 14th in Wonder Woman 1984. 
These next few weeks will be telling about whether or not those dates actually hold. IFC's horror film The Wretched is once again leading the weekend's box office with an estimated $186,000 at 59 movie theaters, many of them being drive-in movie theaters. If you want to hear more about The Wretched, check out last week's episode of Film Forward, where we interviewed the co-directors Drew and Brett Pierce. Congrats on another stellar week, friends. That's all for Cinephile News, and now, back to the show. All right, we are back on Film Forward, everybody. We are talking to co-directors of Crip Camp, Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht. They are going to help us out with Gimme Three. They're going to do a combined three because they're such a collaborative, amazing team that's so well-oiled machine that they are now sharing the same mind. So they're giving us three as one. So Jim, why don't you start us off? Let's get the first one. I think the the first film that really had a huge impact on me was Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. I uh, started off doing sound in uh, for theater and then moved into film, but I saw apocalypse now at the the old north point theater in san francisco one of the first dolby stereo theaters in the country to have surround sound and living up here which is like a mecca for sound people it was just it was amazing there's a moment in uh, apocalypse where there's an uh, ambush on on the river and bullets start hitting the side of of the pt boat and i ducked (laughs) i literally ducked and then when i came back three days later I knew it was coming, and I still ducked again. And as it turns out, there was a whoosh of an arm in it that had been recorded. It started in the rear speakers and panned to the front, and it, that you know that literally made me, you know, practically hit the deck. So, and it's just a great sound design. It's just amazing work, you know, Walter Murch, you know. Yeah, I guess we didn't really talk, Jim. You are a seasoned vet sound designer. Um, I guess we threw to it a little bit, but yeah, that is a film that never loses its bite. Even all these years later, that that movie still just hits as hard as ever. Okay, Apocalypse Now, an excellent first choice. Nicole, I'm going to move over to you. Let's get the second one. Okay, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but I'm going to talk about The Times of Harvey Milk, mm. which is, you know, one of the great documentaries, one of the great civil rights documentaries, but it also is the film that made me decide that I wanted to try to get into making documentaries and also that I wanted to move to San Francisco. Yeah. And it felt like it was the kind of film where I saw it in the early 90s when I was in college and there was a lot of ignorance at that time about the gay community and I felt like I came out of that film a different person that I went in and also that like I wanted to go be involved with those filmmakers somehow or that community somehow and so I you know I thought a lot about that profound experience that I had of just like watching that film and how it changed me when thinking about how to approach a film like Crip Camp. Yeah that's a great great documentary. Criterion Collection has a great Blu-ray of that film is really, really remarkable. It's got a lot of amazing special features. So if you, if anybody listening hasn't seen it, I recommend picking up the Criterion Collection edition of it because it's filled with additional hours of entertainment. Another excellent choice, Nicole. And now we move to our third. Mr. Jim, you're going to give us your third. Well, it's, I think it's kind of interesting that I've chosen two fictional things. The one that I chose was the TV show Speechless. Okay. I think it was on for three seasons. Mm-hmm. And it involved a young man who was in high school and his family. And he's got, I believe it, it's cerebral palsy. And he 
speaks through other people talking for him. He's got a little device that has a little laser pointer for words and such. But for the first time, I'm sitting in my living room and seeing something irreverent and funny about disability to the point where, A, I'm laughing my ass off. And secondly, I can't believe I'm seeing this on television. On network television. It was on ABC, right? Yeah, yeah, for three seasons. Yeah. And it was, to me, to me, it was a real, it really broke open. It just changed everything for me. I mean, it made me realize that, you know, oh my gosh, this is possible. And uh, I just hadn't seen that. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that show. I had actually, I, I work as a first AD. I AD'd a promo for that show so i got to work with the cast and i forget the young actor's name the 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 lead of the show but he was hilarious (laughs) he was constantly cracking jokes and it was really fun funny to watch him like interact with you know the rest of the cast and crew because everybody was constantly trying to take care of him and like they were walking on eggshells with him and he kept pushing people away being like could let me I'm exploring, you know, I've never been on this back lot before. I want to, I want to take it in. I'm enjoying this, you know, leave me alone for a second. So he was, he was, he was great to work with. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful to hear. There's so many incredible actors out here with disabilities that people haven't seen yet. Yeah. Yet. We will, we will hopefully change that. We will, we will, we have to. And then I got one more Quick question for you since we're going on recommendations. Jim, if you've got one Grateful Dead album to give to the audience, what's the the end all be all Grateful Dead album that it uh, <laughs> I think it's one of the, the albums that I really uh, was important to me. It goes by uh, Skull and Roses or Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead. It was a double live LP uh, recorded at the Fillmore back in 71. And it you know it starts off with Bertha, and it has another title that's not safe for uh, public use, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, a skull blank. It's just a great, great album. All right, I will give it a listen tonight, my friend. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Nicole, Jim, once again, I couldn't thank you enough for doing this. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Great to talk to you too. It was a blast. Thank you. Thank you all again for listening. Again, Crip Camp is available right now to stream on Netflix. Check it out tonight. It is as incredible as it sounds. And we'll catch you guys next time on Film Forward. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.